So if you have a Bible, let's open up to Isaiah chapter 40. So you'll go to Psalms and keep going. Isaiah, big book, hard to miss. If you have no idea where it is, feel free to use the table of, content, of contents. And we're in the Old Testament. And basically this whole Advent period, remember we lit the prophet's candle this morning, is you know, long ago at many, many times he spoke to us by the prophets. Hebrews 1 starts out that way. And so we're going to hear about these prophecies that the Lord gave hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before Christ came in flesh. And as we walk up towards Christmas Day and the incarnation, we think about the coming of the Lord into our world, we're going to hear this didn't just happen out of nowhere. The, the promise of this coming Messiah was, was predicted all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, a page and a half in the Bible. This Redeemer is promised. And we see that echoed over and over and over again in the Old Testament as we hear somebody's coming, somebody's coming, somebody's coming. So we're going to look at the first 11 verses of Isaiah in uh, chapter 40. And while you're turning there, many of you may have seen this. It's been out now for many, many years now. Ken Burns released that big, massive documentary like he normally does. You know, he can't do short documentaries. They're all just, you know, hours and hours and hours long. He released one years ago in World War II. It was just called The War. And that war lasted roughly 1939 to 1945. And what was interesting about that documentary is he interviewed multiple people who had experienced the war from various parts of the world. So he would, he would um, you know, talk to people in different parts of the United States, different parts of Europe. You know, he got these kind of eyewitness testimonies of what it was like as everybody went through the war effort. And the common theme really among everybody that he interviewed was how almost everyone, as the years rolled by, as the casualties piled up, you know, as resources became more scarce, they all felt like it would never come to an end. They were all thinking, we're in the midst of this just multi-years war. Is this conflict ever going to end at all? You can think about even now the people of Ukraine. You may be getting reports from there and see the pictures that are there. And people of Ukraine may be feeling the same way right now as the bombs continue to fall and critical infrastructure like electricity begins to fail. If you're keeping score, the first invasion began on February 24th of this year. If you do the math really quickly, that's nine months this has been going on. And you think about the people in Ukraine and the missionaries that we support there and people that you may know and night after night having to go into the bomb shelter and beginning to think, is this ever going to end? Will, will there be any relief whatsoever? They are even thinking now, are we going to survive this winter? As the electricity is beginning to fail and this infrastructure is coming and everybody, everybody knows kind of the winters in that part of the world are just absolutely brutal and they may be thinking, is help going to ever come? Are we going to survive this? I don't know. And in the midst of difficult times, we instinctively don't look, we, we look for just some little glimmer of hope, don't we? Just some little glimmer of hope. You can imagine back in World War II, they're like, well, it seems like the bombing raids are getting a little bit more spaced apart. Does that mean that they might be losing interest in us? You know, you think about in the midst of a difficult time that you might be going through, you think, is help on the way? You might be thinking, is that treatment actually working? Is the stock market beginning to turn around? I, I, it ticked up just a little bit. You know, is there, is there hope for my 401k? Can this relationship be repaired? You know, you think about, is there any glimmer of hope in the midst of this? We just instinctively look to it. 
And so for the next few weeks, as we enter into the Advent season, as we lead up to Christmas Day, we're going to use the song that we opened with, this Advent hymn, Comfort, Comfort, Ye My People, as the framework for our Advent series. It was originally written in German, and so it was, um, you know, Trostet, Trostet, Mein Leben. And you, it's a, a wonderful hymn, and I hope you'll go back and look over it. We're going to sing it every week in the next few weeks as we lead up, so you'll get used to it by the end of it all. And in, in our modern world, when we hear that word comfort, probably what comes to mind is more of a lazy boy chair, maybe a lack of discomfort, maybe an, absent of, an absence of discomfort. You know, I saw a, a commercial too long ago where they were advertising lazy boy furniture, and kind of the tagline was, live life comfortably. You know, and when we typically think about that, but the word has its root in the Latin words con and fortis, which means to strengthen greatly. So you think fortis, you think fort, fortification. So to strengthen greatly. And as I said, this hymn was originally written in German, and they use that word for comfort is actually the word trosit, which it sounds very similar to trust. And so trust, trust ye my people. And the Advent season is a time of waiting. It's a time of preparation. And, and it comes from the Latin word adventus, which means coming or arrival. And so we're just in this time of waiting and we're thinking about Jesus coming into the world. And we live now in what theologians call the inter-advent period. Basically, we live in the time between Jesus' first coming and his promised second coming. We live somewhere in there. And so we live between the nativity and then we live uh, looking forward to the day when, when Christ will return as a king and judge. And in the, in the meantime, we just wait. And so throughout this series, we're going to ask the question, how do we find real hope in the midst of our waiting? Where, where do we go when, while we wait? Where do we look for for hope? And walking by faith and not by sight can be scary because we don't, know, we don't fully know the way, but we're comforted, we're strengthened by something that we can put our trust in. The hope of Advent is the sure promise that Emmanuel, which means God with us, has come. And he has opened a way for us, and he walks with us even when it's hard, even when it's scary. And we find our hope and our trust and our strength and our, and our comfort in the Lord. And the people of, in the Old Testament waited centuries for this first Advent, this coming of this promised Messiah. And God, through the prophets, called his people to hope to comfort, to strength, to trust, even when it felt like that Messiah would never come. It may feel like that for you now, waiting for what seems like centuries for Christ to return and fix what is broken. You ever had those moments when you look around in the world and you look around at just the brokenness that's there or the brokenness that exists in your heart, the brokenness that you see, and you just think, Lord, don't you see? Lord, will you please come back and make this right? We know what that feels like. Lord, this is just not the way it's supposed to be. Lord, would you please come and fix it? We please have the day where we don't need, you know, counselors anymore. And we don't need missionaries to go far afield. These, like when I get put out of a job immediately when Christ comes. You know, they say, Lord, would you please come and just make everything right? It feels like the bone's broken. And it needs to be set and repaired. Where do we find hope in the midst of that? As we'll see, it's more than just a future hope in the coming or return of a Messiah. It's also a hope in how he will return and what he will bring when he comes. And these promises give us comfort. They give us strength because we can trust the one making the promises. And I want you to see if you can pick up on some of these promises as we read. So let's look, let's look at Isaiah chapter 40 verses 1 through 11. 
And you'll find the opening words very similar to the hymn that we opened with this morning. Let's give attention to the reading of God's word. Comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, Cry. And I said, What shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Get you up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice in strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. And he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. As we've heard, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord does indeed stand forever. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would take these words and that you would remind us of reality. Lord, remind us of the hope that we have in you. We thank you, O Lord, that these promises are sure and trustworthy and they bring great comfort and strength to us, your people. So, Lord, help us to uh, just be reminded of your grace and your mercy and your patience and your long-suffering in bringing your plan of redemption to pass. We humbly pray and ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, no points this morning. So if you usually feel shackled by the outline, today's your day. We're just going to talk through this passage. And as we look at chapter 40, chapter 40 marks a big shift in the book of Isaiah because it moves from confrontation to comfort. In chapter 39, Isaiah predicted that Israel would be led off into captivity in Babylon. And so you have this vision where, look, I I showed these people all that I had in my house. And God says, guess what? There's going to be a day when everything that you just showed them will be taken away from you and you will be led off into exile under an oppressive force because of your sin and rebellion against Yahweh. And as the Lord predicted, that actually happened. But Isaiah saw hope on the horizon in the form of a coming shepherd king. And I've used this illustration before when we think about these prophetic books. Oftentimes you see these things and it seems like they happen very close together. But actually there could be long spans of time between these things. And so this is the prophetic perfect tense. And it's like looking at a mountain range. You know, if you've ever been up to a high place and you look out over a mountain range, it looks like the mountain peaks are very close together, don't they? But there could be miles and miles and miles between those peaks. And so when Isaiah, he looks and he sees this coming shepherd king, it looks like this mountain peak that's right behind this other one, but there's a lot of time that exists in there. 
And before we begin looking at the shepherd king, we're given a helpful contrast in verses 6 through 8. And so, look at what happens here. The angelic voice Isaiah hears in chapter 6, verses 6 through 9, which is the vision of the, the throne room of God, now speaks to him again and tells him to cry out. And we're reminded in verse 6 that all flesh, i.e. all mankind, is like grass, and even its beauty is fading. It's temporary. I, for one, am very familiar with that fading uh, beauty. Verse 7, that was a joke. Verse 7, for all of its bluster... Humanity is nothing when compared to the powerful work of God who can destroy it with just a breath. Did you see that? All flesh is like grass and it can just be blown away by the breath of the Lord. And when we're tempted to follow other voices or when we're tempted to look inward for help, God reminds us that even the wisest and strongest and most smart among us is just like a fading flower when compared to Almighty God. Even the things we look to in this life for significance, it might be money or power or fame or grades or social status or physical appearance, whatever it is, even those things that we look to for significance in this life, they're all temporary. They're all fading. All of them, when compared to Almighty God, is just but a vapor. It's like grass that grows and it just dies and it's brushed away. These things appear to be fulfilling on their own, but just under the surface, they're shriveled up and dying because they lack roots. And I've used this illustration before uh, that Paul David Tripp used in one of his books. He says that we're really good at what's called apple nailing. It's like we have this tree, and, and our, the tree that we have is actually dying and it has because it's not rooted. But we're really good at taking and going and buying fancy apples and stapling them onto the tree to make it look like the tree is healthy. And what he's saying there is all these things that we look to in this life for significance and worth and value, whether it be your paycheck or your family name or whatever it is, anything other than Christ is like taking and stapling an apple to a dead tree. Because it's only through Christ that that growth and that strength and that life actually comes from the inside out. But we're really good at apple nailing. I am. You probably are as well. And look at verse 8. Look at what the prophet says. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If you're wondering where I've got that from, there it is, verse 8. And you were just reminded over and over again that in striking contrast to what we normally put our hope and trust in, the people of God are reminded that there is something that's more permanent. The grass withers, the flower fades. We all are like grass. These things that we put our hope and trust in, they're all like grass. They're fading away, but... The word of the Lord will stand forever because it comes from an eternal and forever God. And so we look to his word. As we look to his word, we look to God himself. And what does this forever standing word of God tell us today as we still wait in exile under the weight of our sin and the disappointment of a fallen world? Isaiah looks forward and what he sees is absolutely incredible. Look at verse 1 where God speaks a word of comfort to his people. This is a message of strengthening grace. Remember, don't think comfort lazy boy. Think comfort trust. So trust, trust ye my people. Strength, strength ye my people. Why? Why, can we, why, why do we have this word of comfort? Why can we understand that? Look at verse 2. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended. 
this time of strife and, and iniquity, uh, all of that has been pardoned because of the Lord. And you see that little phrase, and she shall receive double for all her sins from the Lord's hand. That at some point God has judged the punishment sufficient and is now ready to forgive. More on that in a moment. Look at verse 3. We hear the same words that John the Baptist would later cry out to others in the wilderness as he himself pointed forward to the one greater than him. It says, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight a highway for our God. Why? What does this tell us? God is coming to be with his people. Remember, this is written before the incarnation of Christ. As Isaiah looks forward, he says, there is going to be a day when God is going to reside with his people. The eternal word is going to put on flesh and dwell amongst us. Tabernacle amongst us. It's amazing when you think about it. And notice where God promises to come. Does he promise to come when things are great? And it's a lush green garden, and there's a lot of crops hanging off the trees, and everything looks great, and everything's fine. No. Where does he promise to come? Into the desert, where his people are. Into those dry and rocky places in our hearts where we think nothing could possibly ever grow. Yeah, even there. Into this broken wilderness marked by pain and suffering and death. Into those bombed out places in our lives that keep us cowering in fear and shame. That is where the Lord has promised, I will come to you in the midst of the wilderness and I will dwell with you and I will be with you. Notice, the sh notice what happens in the text there. It's never God saying, I'm going to stay right here and I'm going to call you up to my high holy mountain and when you figure it out, you can come up here and be with me. No. It's God with us. He's moving towards his people. He's going into their midst and dwelling with them, even in the hard places. And I hope that's a comfort to you. You consider your own life and heart. But how is God going to come? How is this promised one going to come? Look at verse 10. It said he's going to come as a conquering king against his enemies, bringing rewards for those who trust in him and judgment on those who oppose him and oppress his people. But did you notice the contrast in verse 11? So he's, he's going to be this mighty king who's going to bring recompense and all of those who are, are shaking their fist at him and all of those who are oppressing the people of God, he's going to take care of them. But what's he going to do with his people? Look at verse 11. So he's going to come like a gentle shepherd. He's going to gather his flock in his arms. He's going to lead them, protect them, provide for them. So he's going to be a strong and mighty defender of his people, but like a shepherd, tender and near and close, and love them and draw them to himself. It's an amazing contrast when you think about it. The shepherd king that we, we get this picture of in Isaiah. And what will this shepherd king bring with him? A total social and moral upheaval and a renewal with a single purpose. Look at verse 4. I know I'm skipping around a little bit, but trying to kind of hang this in some way where we can understand. In verse 4, we're given a picture of how that highway mentioned in verse 3 is going to be built. It says, Every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill will be made low, and the uneven ground will become level, and the rough places a plain. This is not describing a topographical change. It's describing the work God's going to do at the heart level of every human being. Every valley shall be lifted up. The bomb craters of sin will be filled in. The chasm separating a holy God from his people is going to be filled in by grace and forgiveness. 
Every mountain and hill will be made low. All of our pride and our self-sufficiency is going to be cut down. And it's all going to be level. And the Lord is going to make it happen. So all those that feel oppressed and weak and tired, he's going to raise them up. All those who are proud and saying, I don't need God and I don't need this, they're going to be cut down. And what's going to happen is there's going to be a level plane. And the Lord is going to make it happen. And this is the paradox of the gospel, isn't it? It both confronts you and it comforts you. You ever thought about that? That paradox, it confronts you and it comforts you kind of simultaneously. It reminds us all that we're way worse because of our sin than we could ever dare admit. While simultaneously reminding us that because of Christ we're way more loved than we could ever imagine or hope. And the ground is going to be leveled out and God's going to do this work of bringing repentance and restoration into the lives of his people. Did you see how many times in this passage it uses the word shall? He shall do this. This is going to happen. Not maybe. Shall. There's a certainty to it. The ground's going to be leveled out. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. And there is a hopeful certainty in these verses. Why is there such certainty here? Why can we bank our lives on it? Because it says, The mouth of the Lord has spoken because God has made a promise. This is going to happen. And as we've noticed, when you look at the history of the Scripture, what part of the Scripture, where has God failed in keeping His promises? Not once. He's been faithful to His Word up until this point. And even in this moment, as we wait for His return, all the promises that are there, these other mountain peaks that we see off into the horizon, He is going to keep His Word. He's a covenant-making and a covenant-keeping God forever. And we rest and we trust in that hope. Because the Lord has spoken. And so why will this work be done? Why will this highway be built? Verse 5. So that the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. Again, that word glory is the same word that Moses asked. Lord, show me your glory. Show me your kabod. Show me your weight. Show me your substance. All of this weight, this glory shall be seen by all flesh. All those people in verse 6. They're going to see his glory. A forever highway will be cut through the thorns and thick forests of a fallen world, and access will be granted. There's no barriers. What that shows is one day this is a kingdom that's ruled by a strong king. And what it is is it brings safety and stability and flourishing. It's going to be a, a safe place for God's people to dwell. And Isaiah saw this day coming when that way would be made finally safe for God's people. And so how can God's people truly know that the way has been made safe? How do we know? How do we know that what God has promised, he's going to do? Let me give you a, a couple of verses. Because how can we know that the way has been made safe? Because someone else has gone before us and secured that way at great cost. I don't know if you've ever seen at the beginning of a season up on Mount Everest, there's these guys called the Sherpas that are there. And what they do is they go at great risk to themselves. And some of them die every year. They go and they prepare the way for other people to come along behind them to be able to summit Mount Everest. It's an arduous task at high altitudes. And they're dragging ladders and lashing things down. And at great cost to themselves, especially as you know, glaciers have moved and things have changed over the years, they have to go and make the way safe at great cost to themselves. 
Hear now the one who has gone before you. John 1, 14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Hebrews 10, 19 and 20. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened up for us, through the curtain that is through his flesh. Hebrews 9, 12. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of bulls and goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, securing for us an eternal redemption. Hebrews 6. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Colossians 1, 19 to 20. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. We look forward and we look to the cross and we look to Christ and it reminds us of the price of our redemption, his atoning death in our behalf. And we look at that and go, Lord, that makes no sense. But yet, for his own glory, it was the way that the Lord uh, deemed to rescue and redeem us from our sin and that this warfare and strife would be in. And this death has become a pronouncement of peace between God and his people. You think about this in the, the final words of Christ on the cross, right? It is finished. It's done. And an end of hostility, an end of warfare. Jesus has cut the narrow way that leads to life, and he alone is the narrow gate. And so as we stand on the doorstep of Christmas, there's questions that we all need to wrestle with. Do you know this Jesus that the whole Bible points to? Do you know him, or do you just know a lot about him? Do you know him? Do you trust him by faith alone? As we come to the table and we are reminded of the body and blood of Christ, are you able to take it by faith and saying, Yes, Lord, I rest in you and you alone and I trust you by faith. Do these gospel promises ring true in your heart when you hear this and you go, Oh, this sounds almost too good to be true, Lord. Do you know this peace that we're talking about? John chapter 10, 27 to 28. Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Let me give you a couple of quotes as we close up here. Tim Keller's book, Hidden Christmas, really great book. Would recommend it to you. Very short. Hidden Christmas. Here's what he says. If Christmas is just a nice legend, in a sense, you're on your own. But if Christmas is true, then you can be saved by grace. Christmas means that through the grace of God and the incarnation, peace with God is available. Once you make peace with God, then you can go out and make peace with everyone else. And the more people who embrace the gospel and do that, the better off the world is. Christmas, therefore, means the increase of peace, both with God and between people across the face of the world. And we ask the question, Lord, why would you do any of that? Not because we deserved it, so that we could see him face to face again in heaven's perfection and eternal safety, so that his glory would be made manifest, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. All of this he did out of his mere good pleasure from all eternity, out of love and mercy. And have you ever thought about this? The wonder of Christmas, right? We're always looking for Christmas magic, right? 
The wonder of Christmas is the fact that Christ came into the world in the first place. That's the real wonder of Christmas. That into this broken world, full of people who are shaking their fist at God and his enemies, into their midst while they were in the darkness, on them a light has shone. That is the wonder of Christmas. The very fact that God would come in flesh to dwell amongst us at all. That's the true wonder when you think about it. And even that is a picture of mercy. Even that is a picture of grace, like a flashlight shining in a dark cave. That's the true wonder of Christmas. Again, here's where Keller said, and I'll close with this. So where the love and wonder comes from, because he has done all this and brought us to himself, he has done it. So if someone asks you if you're a Christian, you should not say, well, of course I am. There should be no of courseness about it. It would be far more appropriate to say, yes, I am, and that's a miracle. Me, a Christian. Who would have ever thought it? Yes, he did it, and I am his. That's enough. It's enough that Jesus has died to make us his own. And as we move towards this celebration of the incarnation, none of it makes sense when we think about the world that he entered into. But yet, so that his glory would be made manifest, so that he could call all the people to himself, he entered into this world while we were at our worst to rescue and redeem us. Isn't that a wonder? And at what cost did he purchase our redemption? Look no further than the table below. Look no further than this reminder of God's grace. The body of his son broken. His blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. Because God loves his people. And so that his glory would be made manifest. It's a wonder of grace. And so we consider it. The call is this. Trust, trust ye my people. Strength, strength ye my people. Comfort, comfort, ye my people, not in yourself, but in Christ and what Christ. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that every bit of it's true, and we're reminded the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Lord, it truly is just a marvel of your grace. And Lord, as we consider this great shepherd king, this one that Isaiah looked forward and he saw, Lord, you actually came in real space and time to come and to rescue and redeem your people. You came and you lived a life that we could never live perfectly under the law of God. You died the death that we deserved. And by your stripes and by your wounds are we healed. Lord, prepare our hearts even now, uh, not only for Christmas, but also as we take the table and we come to the table in just a moment. Remind us of your grace and mercy. Lord, give us comfort and strength while we wait for your return. But we are grateful that you've not left us alone. And so, Lord, thank you for the cross. And thank you for Christ. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.